hypnosis in obstetrics. It's something you probably just don't hear about every day, but the practice of hypnosis in medicine has existed for more than a century and in that time collected a fair amount of evidence on its behalf. So what are the benefits and risks of hypnotic practice, both in the obstetric domain and in the wider arena of medicine? This and other questions will be the focus of our discussion today. You're listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining me at Omnia Education's Women's Health Annual Visit in New York is Dr. David Gandell, Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Strong Memorial Hospital at the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York. Dr. Gandell, welcome to the program today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you. So to start, let's get a basic primer uh, for what hypnosis is, and maybe more importantly, given most pop media portrayals, what hypnosis is not. Sure. Well, hypnosis is an altered state. One is aware of that. It's kind of a trance-like state in which there's a focused concentration. Often the person appears to be asleep, and often the word sleep is used in inducing a hypnotic trance, but in fact, uh, the person just has a very intense concentration, and in that state becomes susceptible to suggestion. That is, they can accept a suggestion and incorporate it into their physical and emotional state. Fascinating. Do we know anything about how that mindset can be obtained or actually what that mindset is? You call it intense focus, concentration. What exactly is this hypnotic state? Well, almost all of us have experienced a self-hypnotic state at various times. For example, uh, driving on a highway for a long distance and thinking about other things, uh, making your way through traffic, stoplights, uh, moving around, reacting to things, and then arriving at your destination, not really remembering the trip, but knowing that you got there safely. So the white line fever scenario <laughs> as a right. hypnotic state, potentially. Or perhaps daydreaming or being deeply absorbed in an excellent book and then finally waking up from the book and realizing that your foot has fallen asleep and is painful, but you haven't experienced it or noticed it during that time period. So many of us have that kind of a phenomenon that we can identify with. Uh, we know that hypnosis has been described for thousands of years. Uh, the ancient Greeks had something called temple sleep, that, which was part of a healing ritual. Egyptian uh, writings also reference a kind of a hypnotic state during which uh, people underwent cures for various illnesses. Franz Mesmer uh, popularized it in the 1800s, in which he waved his arms and did a variety of other things that were used to induce a trance-like state in his patients, and he brought about some spectacular cures, such as treatment of hysterical blindness, and actually the process became known as mesmerism. Unfortunately, he believed that there was some transfer of an animal magnetism from him or from other inanimate objects into his patients, um, and he became discredited, not because of his results, but because of his feeling about the underlying theory. We don't really understand how hypnosis works, but we know that it does. We know that during this altered state, uh, the person perhaps wants to please the hypnotist or perhaps they are having a physiologic change. Uh, PET scans that have been done and other kind of EEGs done during hypnosis show changes and often show changes in the area of the brain where the suggestions are being given. So that if a person is being told that something black and white is actually in color, the area of their brain that perceives color shows activity. So it, it appears that verbal cues are able to incorporate physiologic changes. Right. So this is set apart or distinguishable from a catatonia or some sort of temporary locked-in syndrome. You're not completely set apart cognitively. You're quite there, quite present. 
is it analogous in any way to a deep meditative state? It is analogous to a meditative state, but meditative states generally exclude all external stimuli, and during the hypnotic state, the person is able to focus on information from another person, the hypnotist, except in cases of self-hypnosis. And self-hypnosis is taught to a person as a post-hypnotic suggestion where, given the right cues, they can enter the same type of hypnotic state they were in and give themselves suggestions that they have been programmed to give by the hypnotist. And this allows them to uh, work on various issues, whether it's uh, pain, uh, smoking cessation, weight reduction, and other things that might have been the target of the hypnosis. Fascinating. So there's a suggestibility aspect to it, but not necessarily to the extent that often historical or even current pop media likes to portray such as the individual is suddenly now going to be acting like a dog because they've been told to do so. Would you say it's not quite in that realm in terms of the medical applications of hypnosis? Correct. And there's medical hypnosis and then stage hypnosis. In stage hypnosis, uh, hypnotists uh, do a variety of suggestibility tests on the crowd, take people that are particularly suggestible, bring them up on stage, and then can induce them to do various silly things. In this case, it's clear that there are aspects of this where the person is wanting to please the hypnotist or perhaps someone who has been uh, very withdrawn but really secretly wants to be able to just get themselves out there. Um, They can have a sort of dissociative fugue for a second, right? Correct, (laughs) and it's giving them permission to act a certain way. That's a different thing than uh, medical hypnosis although some of the principles may still be the same. But suggestibility is not gullibility. And one of the interesting things is that in terms of people that are responsive to hypnosis, uh, often the more intelligent they are, the more responsive they are. If they have the ability to imagine, if they have the ability to um, think outside the box, uh, oftentimes they are receptive to hypnosis. Someone who's a very concrete thinker, someone who is untrusting, Uh, someone who is suspicious, um, someone who has a very dull imagination, often doesn't have the ability to then use the cues to enter a hypnotic state. Well, let's move into some of the applications then and focus in on the obstetric arena. When we talk about obstetrics uh, and hypnotic states, are we essentially referring to analgesic or pain control for the most part, or are there other applications that we haven't... uh, considered, at least not on my side. So there are a number of applications. Certainly the one that uh, had, for many years, women very interested was management of labor pain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hypnosis is very effective for management of uh, pain. Now, it depends on how well a person can be hypnotized, and it's sort of on a bell curve. About 15% of uh, people are not good hypnotic subjects, so they, they may have a very light or almost non-existent hypnotic trance. About 15% of people have deep hypnosis, and those are patients that can actually use hypnosis for surgical incisions. And there have been heart operations, orthopedic operations, root canals in dentistry done just with hypnosis with complete analgesia and anesthesia. And then the majority of us are able to be moderately hypnotized. Patients that can be moderately or well hypnotized are great subjects to use it for obstetrics. It can be done antenatally. It's done during the early phase of pregnancy. A woman is taught the hypnotic technique and self-hypnosis and can prepare herself for birth, uh, not only in terms of management of pain, but also 
uh, rapidity of labor, success of labor, decrease in uh, postpartum bleeding, decrease in postpartum depression, all of those have been addressed using hypnosis uh, quite successfully. Uh, but in terms of pain management, women are often taught several things. One is a technique called glove anesthesia, where during hypnosis they are imagining their hand to be numb and get increasingly numb as if it's been injected with an anesthetic. And in fact, during the training for this, if you take a needle and poke that particular hand, they won't respond while they will with the other hand. So you can demonstrate uh, directly and with them uh, that they actually have an anesthetic effect in their hand. Then when they're in labor, they can either place their hand on their abdomen and transfer the hypnotic analgesia to the painful area, or if they're having back pain, they imagine their hand touching that area, and that is very effective. Suggestions are also given to replace sensations of pain with instead sensations of pressure or um, fullness or tingling. Uh, and also there can be a temporal distortion where the actual contraction time is shortened in their minds to be a very short time and the uh, interval between contractions is lengthened while in fact that's not happening physiologically in terms of perception it is. So it can be very effective in terms of pain management. And I've seen women who appear to be asleep, they're not, they can still respond to instructions and if there's an emergency they're still able to participate and give an informed consent. It's fascinating to me because it's like the ultimate conjuring of the mind over matter uh, debate. And what I wonder about in this case, though, is what about the risk of suddenly snapping out of, out of a hypnotic state at the worst possible moment? I mean, one of the advantages that people often think of when it comes to anesthesia or other uh, analgesics is that they'll be thinking, this chemical says you will not be coming out of this state until that chemical is out of your system. What about the inherent risks of, of being in a hypnotic state undergoing some sort of procedure um, or uh, labor delivery in this case as we're talking about and then suddenly something disrupts that that process whether it's an external factor or maybe even, even internal since it's a self-hypnotic state as you said uh, self-imposed have you experienced that have you seen that is that a risk for patients is it any greater than um, any other risks that they're dealing with well I, I think that certainly is a concern that patients have and that's all addressed in advance but you can actually give what are called post-hypnotic suggestions that continue to be effective even while a patient is not in hypnosis. You can address the fact that there may be an emergency. What if there's a fire alarm or a fire drill and somebody had to evacuate their labor room because of a fire? Would they no longer have the effect of their hypnotic state? In fact, that's not true. Part of the hypnotic preparation is to say that if you are required to deal with an emergency, you can emerge to deal with that, but the effect on the pain being perceived as pressure will continue to persist. In addition, in preparing for this kind of a process, patients are taught to have very powerful triggers to bring on the self-hypnotic state so that a single word or a single image can bring them right back into that place. Uh, suggestions are also given that the more intense the pain, the deeper the hypnotic state, and the more the pain becomes just a sensation of tingling or pressure. So you build things in to make them be able to manage their symptom. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm joined by Dr. David Gandell from the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York. It's amazing to me the implications beyond just procedural practice for hypnosis are great. How does this happen? I mean, what on the physiologic level is enabling uh, hypnotic states to create scenarios for people that are just so effective at being able to control all sorts of external factors that might come into their lives. I mean, I can wake up and say, I'm not going to get angry, I'm not going to be stressed out today, and some external factor can completely change that. But you're saying that 
people who have the capability of entering self-induced hypnotic states can potentially handle not just upfront procedures or big, big events, but can also get through their day-to-day -day in a much better way than most others. Is that true? Absolutely. I mean, when, when you look at some of the applications for hypnosis, they include things like cigarette cessation, tobacco cessation, addiction cessation, uh, dealing with anxiety, uh, being able to conjure up a particular scene and have that create a sense of calm, uh, dealing with uh, obsessive-compulsive disorders, tics, stuttering, trichotillomania, which is chronic hair pulling. All of these can be impacted by hypnotic uh, suggestions. We don't know exactly how it works, and it almost sounds too hard to believe. Right. But I'll give you an example. A good hypnotic subject can be told that a penny that is about to be dropped into their hand is red hot. And when you drop it into their hand, they jerk their hand away, experiencing it as heat. And a good subject will often have a small welt appear at the point where they held the penny. What about it made that happen? It's really not clear, but it's quite dramatic to see. I should probably tell you, you're blowing my mind right now as you're saying <laughs> this. Because I don't understand the physiologic basis as to how it can do it. The mind over matter element is, is always nice and theoretically uh, speculative discussions. But what you're talking about is, a, is an instant physiologic reaction to something which did not burn or scald the individual at all, technically. But they somehow mounted an immune response <laughs> just like that. Immediately. I had a patient who uh, was being hypnotized for some other reason, but she also had acne. And just for fun she wanted her acne to improve, I told her that it would start to improve as the hypnotic session occurred, but that it would initially only improve on the right side of her face, and you could literally see that side looking better. We're not talking about pustular kind, but the face actually started to look a more normal color, the redness started to diminish. Uh, if you hypnotically tell someone that one hand is getting much hotter than the other, and you then look at the hand, it looks more red. If you feel it, it feels warmer. I don't understand it, but I've seen it work. Probably one of the most dramatic areas where I have seen it work so beautifully in obstetrics is patients with hyperemesis gravidarum. Women who have the excessive vomiting in pregnancy often experience incredible disruption to their lives. They lose weight, they become dehydrated, they have electrolyte disturbances, and I have had patients who had failed all conservative measures, intravenous drugs, uh, the ondantrasan, the promethazine, all of the other measures. They've been treated with multiple courses of IV fluids. Uh, they've been hospitalized. They've thrown up their pediatric feeding tubes. They're on central hyperalimentation and underwent hypnosis and within hours had a resolution of their hyperemesis and were able to go home within hours. What about the uh, hyperemesis gravidarium by proxy? Maybe you'd be able to help the partners? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, this sounds, in a way, the way that you describe it, these case samples, it sounds like some sort of adaptive mechanism that people have, some people, not necessarily all, in terms of their success rate for being able to enter this state. But given that, given what you've seen on the anecdotal side and what some of the research has played out over the years, why has this type of approach to treatment not exploded on the map um, of, of medicine across number of, a number of fields? Um, is it because of a reputation for being pseudoscience-ish? Is it weighed down by simple cultural connotations? Or is there just a lack of evidence right now? Part of the problem is that to get insurance coverage, and coverage drives what's available in medicine, 
uh, you have to have evidence-based medicine. And the, uh, the gold standard is placebo-controlled, double-blinded studies. You can't do that with hypnosis. Uh, first, if a person thinks hypnosis might help, and, and certainly belief in the process is part of what helps it to work, they're not willing to participate into something where they're randomized not to be hypnotized, but in fact, they would know that they weren't hypnotized. So a Hawthorne so effect it, at that it, point, yeah. yeah it, so m these are basically observational studies, uh, case studies, series. There are some substantial series that have shown benefit. ACOG recognizes that. They have a, one of their bulletins on nausea and vomiting of pregnancy, notes that uh, hypnosis may be useful. It also comments about hypnosis being effective for anticipatory as well as real nausea and vomiting with chemotherapy. Uh, so, so it's acknowledged that it works, but we do have a paucity of studies. Um, having it available is an issue. Not everyone has been trained to provide uh, hypnosis. Many hypnotists that uh, hang up their shingle uh, are there for issues such as cigarette cessation and weight loss, probably the two big things that people want help with uh, psychologically and physically, but they haven't gotten much experience using it in obstetrics. Patients often have a certain amount of resistance because the idea that you will enter a certain state and then be better sort of implies that it's just in your head. And I think some people are, are uncomfortable with acknowledging that, in fact, there is an interplay between the mind and the body. Uh, George Engel, the father of modern psychosomatic medicine, came from our institution at the University of Rochester and clearly showed that there's an interplay between the mind and what happens to our physical state. And that's what hypnosis taps into. So how do you communicate with patients who have that type of reluctance? Are those cases in which you're just not going to win them over uh, most of the time? Or are you able to somehow get them on the level for saying, you know, it's not a matter of you being weak to start with and that your mind has to be utilized in a way that says, okay, now, now you can handle it because your problem really wasn't a physical issue to begin with. How do you convince patients that, uh, in fact, the utility of this extends far beyond what their expectations might have been? I think it's like introducing any other new subject to someone. It's a matter of education. People really respond well to examples. They understand what it's like to be in a dream state and, or that halfway point between sleeping and awakening where something may be going on and they aren't really aware of it or not really sure what, what's real and what's not, and they, they accept it. But people that, that are having issues for which they're really motivated to improve are very receptive. Women with hyperemesis gravidarum tend to be better hypnotic subjects than women without it, and it's easy to understand. They're really motivated. The flip side of that could be someone who's a smoker who really doesn't want to quit, but is being pressured by their family to do something. And so they go to the hypnotist, but they really don't want to quit, but they want to be able to say to their family member, look, I tried everything. I even tried hypnosis. That's the kind of person where hypnosis won't help. They really don't want to be better. One of the things that worries some patients is that this could be a kind of mind control, that they might be being told or forced to do something they think is wrong or unethical. But in fact, it doesn't work that way. And if the hypnotist tries to induce a patient to do something wrong, to go out, rob a bank, and bring the hypnotist back the money, they'll awaken from the hypnosis and be pretty angry at the hypnotist. Um, so you can't make someone do something they're unwilling to do. But if somebody is really willing to have their pain get better, 
is really willing to have their nausea go away, is really willing to have their uh, smoking addiction improve, uh, it can be very helpful. So there has to be compliance. The idea of a trigger word being able to induce a state still needs to come with an acceptance from the patient. The patient has to be able to internally accept that they're going to go into a trigger state. Is that right? Absolutely. The patient has to be willing. They can't uh, be induced to do it. Now, at the same time, a really good subject, there probably is a risk if you give them a trigger word of having them hear that word and sort of become altered in their state. Right. So as a sleeper agent at that point. As a yeah. sleep, <laughs> right, a sleeper agent. And in fact, when you're teaching people self-hypnosis and the trigger words, you actually put in kind of restrictions on it that if they hear it under other circumstances, if it's at a place or a time that's inappropriate, or if somebody is trying to do it to manipulate them, it will not work. And then it doesn't. So as a practitioner yourself who's investigating this, especially within the niche of obstetrics and gynecology, are you cast adrift in the sea in which very few other people even know about the existence of this as a potential uh, treatment course? Or do you have colleagues out there? Is it, is it an expanding field? I think it's a field that needs more practitioners. Back, for example, when we did not have ready availability of epidurals, there was much more interest and use of hypnosis and hypnotic techniques for pain management. So as we've become better with analgesics, as we've become better with pharmaceuticals for different things, uh, there may not be that same need for hypnosis. It's also very time-consuming. You know, as a practitioner, uh, for me to use hypnosis on someone for severe hyperemesis, for example, it might be an hour and a half or two hours of an initial session and perhaps one or two more sessions. That's a lot of time and investment. It's not a lot in terms of comparing it to being hospitalized for weeks on IV uh, hyperalimentation. So I think it's a worthwhile investment, but it is a significant investment, and I think that's uh, where some of the the lack of access occurs. Any concluding thoughts? And we've covered a lot of material here. Sort of went to the stratosphere and back as far as being able to talk about the potential applications, and it's absolutely fascinating. Any way that you want to help summarize for our listeners this subject area, both within obstetrics and in the wider arenas of medicine and psychiatry? Well, I think the use of hypnosis can be very useful for many conditions. And having it in your pocket as an option for your patients or even for yourself is a really good idea. But you need to then be able to offer them someone who they can see. So I'd recommend either using the Internet or your Yellow Pages, uh, contacting hypnotists in your area, giving them a call, find out what their background is, uh, are they experienced in using it for medical applications, ask them about what they charge and uh, whether they're available to make tapes for someone or could they help follow up with a patient and uh, do a telephone hypnotic session if the patient needs uh, reinforcement. All of these are, are things that we provide. Should they have a medical background in your opinion or is that not necessarily a requirement? Is it more um, experience within the field is more important to you? I think it's experience in the field. If you're required, it, there aren't that many medically trained professionals who also do hypnosis so it would just make it too restrictive. Uh, but I think good hypnotists often end up by default getting experience in these medical areas. And I think then you can offer those as referrals to your patients. Well, with that, I very much want to thank Dr. David Gandell for his time and insights on hypnosis, risks, benefits, far more benefits, it seems, than risks in this case, in obstetric practice. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I've been your host. For access to this and other important content in women's health, visit ReachMD.com. And thanks, as always, for listening.